Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming virtual and real-life events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. Scaffold is also supported by listeners like you. If you value this project and want to help it thrive, head on over to patreon.com forward slash scaffold. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash scaffold. And I just want to say a big thank you to those who've already contributed. I really appreciate your support. Okay, now on to the show. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Sia Rene, an artist, writer, and poet who studied philosophy and works across several languages. She was born in Sweden, spent her childhood and youth in Germany, and as a student, she moved to Helsinki and later Denmark. Although Rene is perhaps best known for her poetry, she has worked in documentary as well. Notably, she spent seven years documenting the daily lives of Roma communities in Hungary, India, Greece, Romania, France, Russia, and Finland, working on a book called The Roma Journeys with the photographer Joaquin Eskildsen, which was published in 2007. Experiencing the continued switch between many languages and places in projects like this brings an awareness to the political and cultural implications lying in subtle gaps and shifts in meaning. Sia spoke with me back in May via Zoom from her house in the outskirts of a nature preserve south of Berlin. We talked about, among other things, the way her unusual form of poetry took shape following her studies in philosophy, the artists and musicians who have most influenced her work, and how she justifies the role and relevance of conceptual poetry as we face pressing issues of social inequity and environmental collapse. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. studied philosophy at the Goethe University of Frankfurt, and I'm just curious how the poetry emerged from that. And I know that it wasn't until after you published your first book of poems that you realized that the writing you had been doing could even be called poetry. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious what you were calling it to yourself as you were writing it initially, and mm-hmm. uh, if you saw any continuity uh, from your f- studies in philosophy? This is so, so fun how I did call it. That is such a nice question. Well, I really didn't think that it was poetry and I really didn't think that anybody would be interested in publishing it. So I was mostly inspired by the arts and I had seen a lot of arts with text in it and books while studying in Frankfurt and then I later moved to Finland. But um, When I was writing, I was collecting 
small pieces, I call them. I always call them pieces, not poems. In a book, and I was said, so when that book is, or it's like a little notebook, and I was said to myself, and once this notebook is filled and I will publish a book, many of the pieces were like ideas for bigger installations or objects or something that you could actually, would, that would be tangible probably. So I called it Zarum. And it's just a word that I um, came up with because I like the sounds of the um and I was looking for something else. And only later I realized that it's very close to Zaum, the Russian futurist language. It's like to Zaum, to the mind. Hmm. And now there's, in my Zaum, there's this R. It's almost like the R from a surname. So of course, I had no idea, but it's, <laughs> it fits perfectly. Um, Huh. And just so for people who aren't aware of what Zaroom is, it's typewritten texts in multiple languages that are intertwined with graphic elements like boxes, drawings, witty and ironic, multiple choice questions. Um, and it, it, it's as much about visual composition as it is about the kind of crossing of languages and genres. Mm. And when I first saw this work, as well as your later work, including um, Notes for Soloists, which was published um, in 2011, or 2009, sorry. Um, there's a sense that the work is as much about the arrangement of text as, as graphic elements or as almost like constructive elements as it is about the semantic meaning of the languages you're using. Mm. And uh, so to that degree, you're kind of making pictures with words, literally, <laughs> as well as associatively. And as a, as a budding architect or as an architecture student, for me, that was so exciting to see and reminded me of the love I had for concrete poetry generally. Mm -hmm. where um, where text becomes dissociated from its its meaning mm -hmm. its semantic meaning and is deployed instead to create um, these images and these formal structures in a way mm -hmm. and there's something so unsettling about that that I I really enjoy <laughs> mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, as you were writing this first book of pieces, Zaroom, mm -hmm. w did you have a, a certain audience in mind, or did you have a certain effect or experience in mind to achieve through, through this work? No, no. I, I had no idea that if, and whether anybody would be interested, really. But I thought if I like it, then there would be probably somebody who will enjoy it as well. And really is enjoying of it is probably um, also important, although I, am, I hardly want to admit it to myself, but it somehow makes me happy. And maybe if you ask us, why, why, why on earth do you do this? And that's probably it. Mm -hmm. But what you said about the using language in a way that it's not supposed to, I'm not exactly sure what you said exactly, but it's exactly what I also thought was so interesting, that you can actually handle language in a way it's not... Um, that it's not meant to be used like almost beyond logics it's something that is extremely interesting to me uh -huh. very, uh, very well you've written elsewhere that you're fascinated by the way in which language is taken for granted 
and used unquestioningly as if it were a perfect set of tools. Yes. And yeah. what that reminded me of, and maybe this helps to underscore why, uh, as an architect, I'm excited about the work. It reminded me a lot of the writer George Perec, who has always encouraged his readers to question the habitual. Mm -hmm. And for him, that means, well, I'm just going to quote him here. We don't question it, it being the habitual. It doesn't question us. It doesn't seem to pose a problem. We live it without thinking, as if it carried within it neither question nor answers, as if it weren't the bearer of any information. This is not no longer even conditioning. It's anesthesia. We sleep through our lives in a dreamless sleep. But where is our life? Where is our body? Where is our space? And I mean, famously, Parekh has mm -hmm. demanded that we question our teaspoons. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> she says that exactly these cliches and pre-existing models or the ways, you know, sayings, they exist merely to keep society stable to, and conform that you just use them without thinking. And if exactly this what happens, that you use them without thinking and you continue reinforcing pre-existing structures and prejudices and nothing will change. If nobody ever questions them, um, nothing will change. Mm. And I think why that appealed to me, I guess why first Parekh's writing appealed to me, uh, but then later why your writing did, is that in different ways it's unsettling our relationship to um, habitual life, or it's unsettling our relationship to these commonplace and pre-given ways of being and ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the reason this is so exciting to me is that, I mean, architects, they deal in the everyday. They move and work in the everyday, and they produce the everyday as well all the banal and quotidian experiences we have in the domestic world and in the public one are often, you know, inscribed first by the architect. <laughs> they're imagined first by the architect, um, or I guess I should say they're re-inscribed by the architect because more often than not, um, architects and designers are as habituated as anyone else. But I feel like there's always this longing to be unmoored or to in some way pull up the anchor from habitual experience and go in search of other ways of being and other ways of thinking and mm -hmm. that's what i feel like your poetry offers but probably in the most abstract sense possible because <laughs> it's less about it's less about habitual life and the questioning of it as it is about habitual thought through the medium of language and and so when i read your poems for me it's kind of like the experience of watching a clockmaker dismantle a clock oh yes <laughs> and then re reassemble it into something else entirely and you recognize the pieces but the object that emerges is is something altogether new. Mm. Notes for two. One, one, oh no, oh no, oh no, on, oh. Oh no, 
No to no to is a number two. To tell, to Lawrence, tomorrow, to Ra, to Tim, to Ken, to Oo, to Baco, to Mato, to Aster, to Uth, to Ska, to P, to S, to Sh, to Oo. To begin lundi, to continue mardi, to do mercredi, to sustain jeudi, to end vendredi, to enjoy samedi, to rest dimanche, toujours. One no, no no, no, no nine, no nine, no nine, no nine, no no. Number 29, no two nine, no two nine, no two nine. From no to no, disintegrated. No to no, O to no, to no no, O no not, no not O, O no to N. So and so and so and so and so too. I don't know, like, could you, I guess, walk me through your experience of writing these kinds of poems? And maybe if we focus on notes for soloists in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go about um, dismantling language in this way? Usually it's an idea or a thought or something that I'm picking up and then I try to um, change it. It's almost like a minimalist music. Maybe I just have a repetition, repetition, in, but with a slight change always. And then maybe the language will shift and you have a little element of surprise. So there's these, these um, demands that I have on it. But it's, you know, once I have this construct and I try to reduce it, reduce it, reduce it to an essence. And in fact, in Notes for Solids, it's already there is a sonar aspect that's very, um, it's very present, not in the room, it was a lot more visual. So when you read it aloud, it, it, it may sound different in, but it, or it may sound exactly the same, but in the writing, you can see that language has changed. So it's, it's a subtle shift in it already. And you mentioned minimalist music, and I know that Steve Reich and Philip Glass are influences of yours in mm-hmm. that realm. Yes. And maybe that's a helpful way of imagining your poetry for an audience that perhaps hasn't yet encountered it. Um, with, with music, by the likes of um, of Reich or Glass, there's there's often repetition, and there's often phases. And what's so surreal about their work uh, is that the transition from one phase to the other is is so imperceptible, and that you don't really know you've arrived at a new cycle until you're firmly there, <laughs> until all of a sudden you're there, and it's these subtle shifts. Um, from one, I guess, from one phase to the next, that for me approximate the experience of reading your work. Yeah, but, happened very quickly. It's just <laughs> number one, no one, no one. Like mm-hmm. from number one to no one. Mm-hmm. It's just a graphical element, a condition, slight change in, uh, in a sign to a letter. I wondered if you could talk more about other influences in your work outside of music you've mentioned uh, 
artists like Thomas Schmidt, um, Arthur Cope, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, Marcel Duchamp, Gia Cometti. Could you, I guess, talk about the kinds of artwork or the types of artists that have most influenced you? The very first influence is where I found myself. That there are, there are people who worked in a way that I can completely relate to, and that is um, that is on the border of art, the arts and writing that I like to do, something that I find interesting. With Thomas Schmidt and Arthur Kipke, who were both affiliated with the Fluxus movement um, in the 60s, and they're both German artists. And Thomas Schmidt wrote all of his works on a typewriter, which a typewriter was also really that's of course, all the fluxes people used. But it's, it has this limitation of every letter having the same space, and you can build them always build like with bricks. So it's very clear what you're doing. You make all these shapes, and, uh, and you can control it somehow, what kind of shape you want to, you want to get with that. It's, it's, it's like a brick. And so he um, would catalogue catalogize them. I don't know. So if you can say that in English, but he's books are called catalog, catalog one, two, three, and four. And he has these very simple, um, very simple pieces, but uh, also a, um, a working method that I've really liked. I've mentioned this before, but he said, what you can say with a sculpture, you do not need to build as architecture. And what you can do with a drawing, you do not need to search an image. And what you can clear up on a piece of paper does not need to become a huge drawing. And what you can make up with your mind does not even need a piece of paper. So his methods was just the, a minimal sketch of something that is actually a huge idea. And I actually I can completely relate to this concept of, of writing, this idea, this working method. Arthur Cook also wrote, his, he, he, well, he had a lot of different uh, writings, but they were never assembled in a book. So Barbara Wien published it in a book, which is called Begreifen, Erleben, to grasp and to experience. And, for example, one piece, he has a lot of action pieces, which was very, um, that was common for the Fluxus movement. These pieces were just open the window and close it again, or a piece number 29, this, that, and things like this. So I have all the books of Thomas Schmidt and Arthur and those were the very first influences, so to say, that you mm -hmm. actually inside that you, this is what you can do with language too. Mm. And that is possible as well. And they used English and German as well. I guess in the show notes for this episode, I'll add a list of these influences just for reference, because first of all, the names are hard to spell and hard for me to pronounce, but um, the work itself, I'm just looking online now, it's so exciting and in so many ways, very relevant to the world of obviously fine art and these drawings and constructions of language are often exhibited in art galleries, but also to the world of design and architecture as well. I have, I think, two favorite pieces by Thomas Schmidt, two um, drawings of circles, and then there's the arrows that point back and forth between them and saying, this is a comprehensive analysis of that. And <laughs> another one is, um, I think, in, no, I don't have it in German. The word ocean is about 20 square millimeters large. Mm. This is Thomas Schmidt. And it does it with words, what other people would do with an image, and Marguerite would do it with image and text. He just can do it with mm -hmm. a few words. Mm. 
Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, there's something so self-referential about work like that. And I don't know if this term mise en abyme applies when something is thrown into an abyss yes. uh, or when something is put in between two parallel mirrors. Oh, yeah, exactly. I, think, I get that feeling sometimes when I read your work and as you describe these other projects that or these other artworks that have inspired you, it's a similar feeling really. You're kind of thrown into this abyss and the work re refers to itself uh, mm. in a way that almost breaks it. <laughs> like you could mm -hmm. imagine like an error message coming up on your screen at this point. <laughs> <laughs> this is what is unsettling about it. Isn't yeah. It? Uh -huh. When Marcel Duchamp, he did that already earlier. I mean, he is much earlier. I think he's the next person on my list. Yeah. Mm. And I and I love I loved his work even before knowing his writings. I mean, um, and the art wouldn't be the same without him. It's, uh, there's almost this Duchamp mm -hmm. paradigm. Mm -hmm. But I found his book. I think it's hang on. It's called Duchamp du Signe, Duchamp of the Sign. Sorry, say that one more time. Duchamp of the Sign. Duchamp du Signe. I I think it's the Duchamp of the Sign. I'm not sure if it's translated into English. I only have it in French. Mm. But I can send you the. Well, I'll send you the title, Jean Art. Yeah, yeah well, Flammarion, yeah, that's the publisher. And so it was Duchamp's writing that um, inspired you first before his artwork? Well, he has all these wordplay, which is amazing. Well, many of the artists have that, very free thinking. <laughs> but he, mm. Also his uh, pseudonym, Rose de la Vie, is already, is Eros de la Vie. Rose de la Vie, I think Eros, that is life, that is what he found. And he also like, used that double consonant at the beginning, like in Lloyd. Mm. And, uh, and then he has like for literature, 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 like beds and erasures, or what could you say, translated, as that removals. Mm -hmm. This is his way of saying mm -hmm. literature, or equilibrium becomes equilibrium. It mm -hmm. sounds like equilibrium, the balance, but it's spelled like and who free. Right, so that certain, there are certain I guess parallels in phrases or words that phonetically match or almost match, but yeah. on the page there are different uh, words altogether and they mean different things. Mm. So he's starting to kind of pry apart the phonetic and the semantic. It's just making me think of the relationships between absurdity and nihilism. Mm -hmm. And to what extent the underscoring of the absurdities of language and by extension of life uh, are a way of finding false comfort in existence or escaping a certain degree of responsibility in addressing, um, I guess what we could call reality head on. Does that, does that make sense to you as a question, I guess? Well, yeah, no, it doesn't help anybody to make and <laughs> to put your trust into wordplay or things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. No, well, I, uh. I guess to what extent? I mean, obviously, these these wordplay mm -hmm. works, but the likes of Duchamp or J. Committee, mm -hmm. um, they're at once silly mm -hmm. uh, and deadly serious. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> And yeah. 
I don't know. There is one. I know exactly. There is one. One uh, little text by Emmanuel Ocar, who I would talk to. I talk about that. I was mentioning. I was reading about him. I was mentioning him. So I was reading again in his book uh, Mai, which is just a collection of different small texts and essays, and it's just fragments. It's all kind of. It's a really messy collection, but it's so good. And it's very difficult to pick one text. But he has this one text about the oranges. Mm. where one day he walks out to the market I think and he sees a pile of oranges um, and on top of them there's this little sign with 5F which means that of course it's five, uh, 5 francs is 5 francs per kilo and everybody would make that connection he writes but, and he has of course for all his life he has been, has been um, occupied with or that has been his he, oh, he has been trying to make connections where there were none, or, and, and instead of the ones he was taught, but now he was there and could not make that connection. Mm. Like he didn't see any relation between, hang on, I'll have to find this. Is it so? Sure, yeah. For 55 years, he had been trying to invent other connections than those he had learned, and now he found himself in front of a pile of oranges and experienced a strong sentiment of non-relation followed by an intense feeling of peace and freedom. Uh, this is exactly how I feel in these moments, you know, when you see these, it's freedom. It's not much peace, but, mm. <laughs> but freedom. Mm. Yeah. Like Magritte has done too. Like, you know, you cannot trust La trahison des images, but the ceci n'est pas un pipe, the quite clearly a, a pipe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You cannot trust the, the relation between image and text and perception and the language. Everything speaks its own language and has its follows its own logics you cannot just assume that you, that you can trust everything you see or hear or understand even written elsewhere that it's the ideal of constant reduction to almost nothing that your poetry aspires to and you kind of see it in opposition to the massive flood of information Mm. and the waste of material that we're dealing with in contemporary life Mm. and I guess this brings us to the subject of minimalism As as a kind of vehicle minimalism might bring us from the written poetry to the sound poetry, which in many ways is even more essential or more reduced than the text-based work you've done. And I, I think you've been, it seems like you've been working more in sound poetry lately. Yeah. And I wondered if you could, I guess, talk about um, the work you do in sound poetry and that transition from text to sound and the value of of sound poetry for you? Yeah. As I said, my first book, uh, Zerum, when I published it, I had no idea that it was poetry and I had no idea that you could read it aloud, which is often expected of poetry. So when I was first invited to to poetry, I think it was a seminar in Stockholm, my later publisher of UAE, the Swedish publishers, he asked me to read from it and that was a joke I didn't take him seriously really 
And so, of course, you have to read. <laughs> I, I can't. This is um, a visual. What you can look at it. It's, it makes no sense reading it aloud. And, and they made me read it. And I chose a couple of them because not everything is really because there's a lot of drawings in it. And I found that it was not completely um, impossible. And from that point on, I started thinking about the the reading of Registrarity from the very beginning, even when I first I wrote the first pieces for notes or so, it's, which already has the sonority or the a title that sounds like a score in the title. Then I, so I was reading them aloud and testing them in front of an audience before even publishing it. And it became like one, a third thing to take into account, not just the, the content and the constellation and the page and the shape and all that and the balancing, but also the sonority, which has a very different um, level because every little piece is so short, it's just a couple of lines and very quickly they pass it, like three seconds, then it's gone. Every one of them becomes or gets its own rhythm in a way, or sometimes a slight melody, not too much because I try to keep it very neutral when reading and not to interpret it or not to suggest any certain emotions or effects or anything. But still, they always have a certain rhythm. And then you have to think about that too. Was einmal gedacht worden ist, kann nicht zurückgenommen werden. La promesa, si, no. Number one, no one, no one. Everybody's nobody to somebody. Under Trosselet, turn on no one, no. Unforeseen accident. Circle, point, open circle. I am what I am, what I am, Amia, Miami, Miami. Amen. Together, together. Apart, apart. Enough. So I know it's also with the Nizaj de Mou, the third book, they're all um, like sonar works that are already like scores in the way that I read them. Mm. And uh, when I moved to Berlin, I started working with Tomomi Adachi, a Japanese performance artist, sound, where he's a composer too. And, Some poetry he does too. He does a million things, but um, we have mostly been working with scores together that we perform <clears throat> as duos or with the Berlin Sound Poets Quartet. So, also Dada works, the Japanese Dada works, or the Dada works from the 20s that we yeah. have for different voices, which is great because you don't only use your own works, but also other people's works, which I, I really enjoy. Sorry, the. Um My daughter's there. Oh. Hey, Skanda. Uh, I'm still going, but it's okay. I'm just going to keep the door closed. Okay. Go see. Bye bye. No, 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 it's fine. I'm so, I guess, what's exciting for me about this transition from text to sound is that the the work is becoming as i was saying like further further essentialized or further reduced and mm -hmm. for me there's an even more unsettling um quality to that where we're becoming even more separated from the stability of language um and i guess it's It's that feeling that I get when I hear work like the the sound piece by 
Feinstein that you reinterpreted and performed. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just want to play an excerpt of it um, now to give mm -hmm. this, this conversation some context. Laur leit let lil lin 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 lod lots lun lun libling loit mas 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 mahaman mars mat mail ment mayamik Laur lays let lil lin 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 lo halus lun lun lidling mas 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 maip man smart mats main merk mail mik Laur lair levi lil lin 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 klos lov lun lun lydolus mas 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 mais mark mart mat mais mer mich mik. Laus lems levi lil lin 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 lol lud lun lun lyk lysh mas 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 mak mark marks mat meye mes mich mik. There's this question I had about the responsibility of the poet. And especially now, in light of the pandemic, but also of climate change, um, mass migration, and I guess the deep kind of social inequalities um, that are being brought to light, how, how do you situate yourself as a poet? Or how do you justify your your work in poetry yeah well this isn't constantly in the back of my mind whatever i do actually also when i'm writing and in my practice and my work but also as a human being and then all the choices that you make how do you, do you really want to travel to give a reading for 10 minutes or 20 minutes and have to travel somewhere the means that it's just the choices that you make that those are very important choices like Thomas Schmidt has used the most minimal methods they have used the methods or in all the choices you make that are at least um, damaging in everything that you do. Hmm. Well, and I, I have this quote by Brecht, which I like, but it's, it's so, it changes its um, connotations or the loading of meaning. Now he said, ah, oh, what an age it is when to speak of trees is almost a crime where it is a kind of silence about injustice. This has, has, from has been in my mind <laughs> because it's I heard it when I was very young and I very often think exactly like that that can you really justify what you do mm -hmm. and as you were saying that it takes on different connotations mm. as it's read today when to speak of trees is almost a crime for it is a kind of silence about injustice when in fact to speak of trees <laughs> Well, that's what people have said exactly now. Uh -huh. Speaking of trees, and when you know, under generation I grew up, that was the, yeah, the death of the forest. That was the greatest threat along with the atomic bomb. So, of course, it's it's a metaphor. <laughs> you can, if you speak of food, or if you say, no, no, not food. What passion? Everything is loaded. Everything you put it into perspective or in context, everything becomes very loaded. Mm -hmm. But we're speaking of yourself and your luxury problems <laughs> that I always felt like is not that interesting. Or, but I'm not exactly sure. Everything becomes political if you if you find the right angle. Um, mm -hmm. It's impossible to avoid. It's like you, you use language and you try to avoid it actually, but it's impossible. It's like Henri Chopin who used language in the beginning and really really funny, but he was trying to avoid it. And he, in his um, 
in his writings, he had like Leomar Cosmographique and La Creveta Morusi as like one piece where language is replaced by ciphers, by numbers. And, and everybody started talking in numbers only, or they, it started only with one word, they would say, ooh, and the response was, ooh, and nobody would understand each other. <laughs> and then they replaced it by numbers. So it was like, uh, well, how was it? For 40 years, the number, five, number seven had been used and it became, it went extinct or something like that. It was not only used. <laughs> it's a completely ridiculous sentence. And the radio emissions became pure avant-garde. Mm. The people were happy. Because <laughs> right. nobody understood. And in the end of the, um, his working life, he no longer used words. He had just used his uh, body as a microphone or as an instrument and put microphones in his body, uh, like sound poetry completely, which was not limited by all these connotations and all the load that language has. So he didn't want to be limit, limited by this, the verbal, the, the word. Mm. It's mostly just to use sounds. Mm. Maybe there's a there's a concluding question about the role of avant-garde art today. When I guess there's this sense that society is increasingly becoming fractured and divisive and that culturally we're becoming much more coarse and unsympathetic to difference. And when I think about avant-garde art or poetry, I can't help but worry about the kind of accusations of elitism that might come along with it. Uh -huh. And I wonder, does it ever bother you, um, this question of how accessible the work you do might be uh, and how relevant it might be to uh, other people's experience who may not be as drawn or meant to or may not see avant-garde poetry and art as being kind of meaningful or, or useful or important today? Well, this is something I hardly ever think about. Well, I don't think, I don't want to think about the audience when I'm writing. Mm. It's, and, um, and I, I'm not, um, excluding anybody voluntarily, that's like, like so nothing could be further from my thinking, but I think it's a, this exactly poetry mm. work is probably not what will um, help people in, in, in that or in their experience, because it's so far from any personal experience, <laughs> it's totally abstract. So in that sense, it doesn't really help me. I'm not exactly sure, because I have had encounters also with people who have loved it, whom I would never have thought. Mm -hmm. And, and and vice versa, people who have men who can't do anything with it. It's like like you you don't have any control anyway. If if there is something I really want to say and have a message, then I will write an essay or write an article in the newspapers. And I know that is there is no nothing you can expect. It's like with human rights, you're just having an, an endless battle, and you will not convince people uh, to change their prejudices against the Roma. Even you can spend your whole life, and I've tried, and, and I, I, I can't do this. I'm, um, you know, I'm too impatient. I could do that. If you really, really want to, well, this is not nothing to do with elitism, but that's, for example, the people that you have to deal with when, mm. when you're writing and when you're, um, when you're really trying to convince or trying to, how, how would you say, get to the people, reach the people. <laughs> I don't know exactly. But, yeah, um, I understand. The poetic way that I don't have that. I don't think that it's made for such um, 
to serve the public. I think that's the wrong end to start. And I'm really starting from the work. And I always think it doesn't matter if nobody likes it, it's okay, that's the work. But if I like it, then maybe somebody else will too. And then that's good. But the best is really when you only feel it when mm, reading it aloud and having the performances. And, but you, you don't know what to expect. I don't think that, and I don't want to control that or to, I don't want to be, um, to have expectations on that. I never had, and I think that's the best um, starting point. See you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Steve Reich and poems by Sia Rune. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Sia Rene, to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and to the special allies of the show out there on Patreon. It really means a lot. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.